The following message is brought to you by the Ezra Institute for Contemporary Christianity. To learn more about the Ezra Institute's mission to advance the Lordship of Christ, please visit www.ezrainstitute.ca. Um, I would like to start by saying that it is a privilege to be speaking here at the Lifesavers Conference at the Champion Life Center, uh, put on by Passion to Reach Ministries and our brother Finu Light, who I understand could not be with us today. In the post-Christian West, it has actually become ever more urgent that we discuss the need for evangelism and discipleship, especially as we face the moral depravity of our modern society. You may have already realized that we're not addressing a biblically literate culture anymore, but rather a humanistic pagan culture that has abandoned the authority of God's word in favor of man's autonomous reasoning where man is his own authority, where man decides for himself what is right and wrong, his own reality. It goes without saying, then, that street preachers or evangelists often speak what appears to be unintelligible words to passerbys or to members who attend these evangelistic campaigns who barely comprehend the terms salvation, sin, and eternal life without syncretizing them, without mixing them, without confusing them with other world religions. As the generations have progressed, this evident gap of communication has been growing between the church and the Western world. Unfortunately, what has become a contributing factor towards the church relegation to the margins of society, partly due to its ineffectiveness in adapting to changing times, a departure from Christendom or Christian consensus, and partly also because of its retreatism from the public square. Some of the Christian communities that have sought to resolve this issue have mistakenly believed that the changes must first occur in our beliefs, leading to various denominational shifts towards LGBTQ acceptance, abortion tolerance, assisted suicide support, amongst other public sins, somehow making the church more palatable for the world. However, it is not our conviction of God's revealed truth that needs to change. That would be the result of an apostate church. But rather, we must understand the nature of our culture and our points of contact with the unbeliever in order to communicate and engage with the world effectively. It is only by being the salt and light of the world that the church can hope to transform human culture by the proclamation and application of the unadulterated gospel of Christ. As the Prince of Preachers Charles Haddon Spurgeon once asked, What was the attitude of the apostolic church to the world? You are the salt of the world, not the sugar canding. Something the world will spit out, not swallow. As scripture instructs us, we're not called to change our message, but rather to proclaim it boldly as the early apostles did, as the early church did, and as the reformers faithfully sought to do upon seeking the restoration of the Christian faith. However, one of the reasons we have struggled to effectively engage with the world is because we have operated as if we were still living in a Christian social order. As Peter, for example, preached to the Jews in Acts chapter 2, the 41st verse reads, So those who received his word were baptized, and there were out of that day about 3,000 souls. These were Jews who were familiar with the books of the law and the prophets, who had a knowledge of God's covenant with Israel. However, our audience today instead are like the Athenians who Paul encountered in Acts chapter 17, in which after preaching the gospel, verses 32 to 34 say, some mocked, but others said, we will hear you again about this. 
So Paul went out from their midst, but some men joined him and believed. Only a handful came to faith in Athens, in ancient Greece, in comparison to the thousands of converts in Jerusalem. An expected result with a culture that had no prior knowledge of God's revealed word or his covenant with his covenant people. Thus, the question is, for the purpose of this session and for this conference, how do we effectively engage with the non-believer, particularly when we live in a pluralistic society with various different worldviews? A worldview is the way you see the world. If you're an atheist, you will view the world from an atheistic perspective. If you're a Muslim, you will view the world from a Muslim perspective. And a worldview must answer four questions. The questions of origin, meaning, morality, and destiny. The objective of this lecture is to teach you how to connect with a non-believer, whether that be an atheist, a Buddhist, a Muslim, a Sikh, or a Hindu, when sharing the gospel. A practice that some have called building bridges. The term implies that members of the different world religions are merely isolated from each other without anything in common like islands separated by water. However, I'm going to explain, contrary to popular opinion in non-reform circles, that there is a common ground, that there is something that all men and women have in common, a point of contact with the non-Christian that the church can effectively utilize to present the gospel of Christ. We'll be expositing select passages in Romans chapter 1 as it relates to evangelism and apologetic conversations. Apologetics coming from the Greek apologia from 1 Peter chapter 3 verse 15, explaining why you believe what you believe. Similar to how Paul utilized this in his sermon on Mars Hill, speaking to the Greeks and the Arapagus. In the end, I hope you will be able to understand and apply the same evangelistic and apologetic method that the Bible utilizes when proclaiming the gospel to the whole of creation. For the sake of illustration, I will be using the loose analogy of bridges to communicate the nature of evangelism, beginning with the common ground that I first mentioned, what can be called the bridge of knowledge. According to Romans chapter 1, verses 18 to 23, Paul writes to the Roman church, stating, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them, because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made, so they are without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him. But they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools, and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. It would be a vain attempt for a Christian to try building a bridge of knowledge between man and God. And by this I mean trying to bring someone into knowing God, because in truth, the bridge has already been built. In fact, as verses 19 to 20 attests, man knows God plainly by means of natural revelation, that is, through his creation. As commentator and biblical scholar Leon Morris writes, these words mean that the universe has always borne upon it the imprint of God's handiwork. While many translators refer to the world, Paul's meaning is, of course, the universe. Order in the heavens as well as on earth bears witness to God. 
This whole mighty universe has always reflected its creator. This is what the Christian and the non-believer hold in common. They both believe in God, except they greatly differ as to the level of that knowledge. The believer has an intimate knowledge of God through his word and by his relationship with Christ. Whereas the non-believer has a plain knowledge of God that is derived from God's creation, including from himself who bears the image of God. The commentator Colin G. Cruz of the Pillar New Testament Commentary argues that the plain reading that all mankind has a level of knowledge of God was the common interpretation of the early church in which he cites the church father St. Chrysostom. For what will the heathen say in that day, that we were ignorant of thee? It was also the belief of the first century Jews, as depicted in the 13th chapter of the apocryphal text Wisdom of Solomon, an Alexandrian Jewish text written during the reign of Caesar Augustus, reflective of the Jewish culture in that day. Why then do atheists deny his existence? Why then do people of other worldviews so vehemently oppose the biblical God, preferring instead the gods of their own making? Verse 18 states that by their unrighteousness, they suppress the truth, a willful suppression of the truth of God. In the end, then, it's not a philosophical issue as if it were a matter of philosophy and logic that prevents man from accepting the truth of the gospel. It's a moral issue. The atheistic philosopher Thomas Nagel, for example, wrote, It isn't just that I don't believe in God and naturally hope that I'm right in my belief. It's that I hope there is no God. I don't want there to be a God. I don't want the universe to be like that. The impediments to belief is man's sinful nature. The inclination to sin and the desire to sin freely. The true God, therefore, threatens his moral autonomy, his pursuit to decide for himself what is good and evil. As we will soon see, this bridge of knowledge, this undeniable knowledge of God is brought about by the revelation of creation, will actually be our most effective tool in our evangelism. But if we are not able to build a bridge of knowledge between man and God, given that it is already there, then our work as a missional people can be described as showing the non-believer that there is a bridge, that he does believe in God's existence because he lives in such a way that presupposes his existence. The bridge building we do engage in then, as it relates to knowledge, is the re-education of Western society, a process termed by cultural philosopher Joe Boot as evangelization, by which we demonstrate that only by the Christian worldview can we make sense of human dignity, justice, truth, morality, and all other aspects of life. This brings us to the next bridge, the bridge of understanding which differs from the bridge of knowledge, for the latter concerns knowledge of God's existence, while the bridge of understanding concerns bringing about an understanding or realization that man lives and thinks in such a way that presupposes God's existence. We are much more involved in this form of bridge building as we can challenge the non-believer on a number of fronts concerning everyday life, such as, for example, the family sexuality, marriage, life, justice, among other things. In this apologetic engagement, which involves an internal critique of the non-believer's worldview and a positive presentation of the gospel, the Bible provides us with the necessary instructions as to how to engage effectively with a non-believer. Proverbs chapter 26, verse 4 states, 
Answer not a fool according to his folly, lest you be like him yourself. This verse in the wisdom literature does not mean avoiding conversation with non-believers, as many Christians have mistakenly, mistakenly thought it to mean. This is why believers have mistakenly dismissed intellectual conversations with atheists, Mormons and Muslims, perceiving intellectual thoughts to be vanity. Instead, what this verse means is not to engage with a non-believer on his own terms of reasoning, because otherwise you will commit the same fallacies that the non-believer is committing. In other words, as a Christian, you cannot think like a secular humanist thinks in order to present your case for the gospel. Because to think like a secular humanist from a place of neutrality is to reason in darkness, according to the patterns of this world. And therefore, the gospel will be seen as foolishness according to the secular humanist's worldview. We must come to realize that there is no such thing as neutral reasoning or neutral ground as it concerns human thought. It is either subject to the lordship of Christ or it is set up against the rule of Christ as a result of man's sin nature. Thus, in order to present and defend the gospel, you need to do it from a Christian worldview, from a reasoning that is rooted biblically in the mind of Christ. In other words, our reasoning must begin from the authority of Scripture, because the alternative would be to start as one's own authority, pitting man's word against God's word, as opposed to allowing God's word to shape how we view his created world. However, when you are critiquing another person's worldview, and by this we do not mean a disrespectful labeling of their beliefs, but graciously demonstrating the futility of their worldview, that is when it's appropriate to temporarily stand upon the presupposition of the non-believer for the sake of argument. In other words, you aren't being neutral, but rather standing upon the non-believer's intellectual grounds to demonstrate its shortfalls when his worldview is followed all the way through consistently. This is what Proverbs chapter 26 verse 5 means. Answer a fool according to his folly, lest he be wise in his own eyes. Let's consider the, the lens analogy. Let us say that there are two men with glasses walking along the Grand Canyon on a hot summer day. Let's say one of them is named Bob and the other one is named Larry. Bob's glasses are not his prescription level, and therefore his vision is obscured. While Larry's glasses work just fine and he can see clearly. As they approach a cliff, because they're walking along the Grand Canyon, Bob with his obscured vision yells, Look, it's a lake. Let's go and cool down a bit, confusing the blue of the sky for a body of water. Larry, however, responds by saying, If you want to take a dip, you won't be coming back up. This is a cliff. Not a lake. Now let's apply Proverbs chapter 26 verse 4 to this analogy. Remember it states, Answer not a fool according to his folly, lest you be like him yourself. What the writer King Solomon means is that Larry should not remove his glasses and put on Bob's glasses, which are of the wrong prescription, to show him that what lies before them is a cliff, because he will see what Bob sees, what appears to be a body of water. In other words, he can't put on his glasses to arrive at the same conclusion that it is a cliff. Instead, what Proverbs chapter 26 verse 5 instructs us, according to the biblical text, answer a fool according to his folly, lest to be wise in his own eyes, Larry can temporarily try on Bob's glasses to demonstrate 
that his vision is obscured. So he's not trying to arrive at the conclusion that, yes, it's a lake by trying on Bob's glasses. What he's doing is he's trying to show him that his glasses are obscuring his vision. And as a result, he cannot see the cliff clearly enough. Larry can then pass his glasses to Bob for him to see for himself. And pretending that Larry's prescription matches Bob's specifications, that the body of water is in fact a sky. And the land doesn't end at a shore, but instead drops down like a cliff. In essence, your apologetic or your apologia is not built upon the foundations of the unbeliever's, unbeliever's reasoning, but rather on scripture. Only then can you faithfully defend and advance the gospel. But in order to refute the unbeliever's reasoning, you must first provide an internal critique from within the unbeliever's worldview to demonstrate its futility. But let's say that Bob responds by saying, well, I think your glasses are wrong. I don't believe that there is a cliff there, despite being able to see it clearly. This is often the case with the non-believer, which reminds us that we are not the ones who bring about a conviction to the hearts of man. We are but messengers while the work of the Holy Spirit is to bring about a change in man. What are some examples of this in conversation? Well, let us first consider the atheist. As it concerns the existence of God, the atheist will claim that the universe is nothing more than a cold, chance-oriented, impersonal universe. As Carl Sagan said, the cosmos is all there is and all there was and all there ever will be. But how does he hope to explain from a naturalistic or atheistic worldview how his self-awareness came to be? How does he hope to explain how consciousness came to be by chance from non-consciousness? How can he explain how living organisms emerge from non-living materials? At this point in the conversation, you are not yet presenting the gospel per se, but rather demonstrating how the naturalistic worldview fails to explain the origin of human consciousness. Once you show the atheist that his worldview fails to correspond with the real world, you then have the opportunity to present the biblical worldview in its place as the only worldview that corresponds with reality, the only worldview that accurately describes reality. This involves demonstrating from the scriptures that the personal and sovereign God created the universe and created life and human consciousness. Apart from biblical creation, no other worldview that is foreign to the biblical worldview can make sense of life in human consciousness. The atheist may behave like Bob, refusing to accept the truth and insisting on embracing his chance-oriented worldview. Or he may, by the work of the Holy Spirit, abandon his atheism and turn to the Christian worldview. Let us consider a secular humanist who is like the atheist, but instead of being content with his private atheistic beliefs, he seeks to apply those beliefs to society. Secularism is defined as an atheistic and materialistic worldview that advocates for a public society free from the influence of religion. The secular humanist who is arguing for equality will agree with the Christian that all men and women are equal. But if he were to be consistent with his worldview he would admit that Darwinian evolution does not provide the grounds for equality. Instead, Darwin's theory of evolution gave fuel to racism, anti-Semitism, racial segregation, the Holocaust as a Darwinian experiment, people groups thinking themselves superior to other people groups, all because evolution suggests that some are more evolved than others. 
It was Friedrich Nietzsche, the German philosopher and atheist, who wrote, Equality is a lie concocted by inferior people who arrange themselves in herds to overpower those who are naturally superior to them. The morality of equal rights is herd morality, and because it opposes the cultivation of superior individuals, it leads to the corruption of the human species. We must explain that logically, secular humanism does not provide the grounds for human dignity. Because its atheistic framework only suggests that we're no different than any and all other forms of life, including a cockroach. When we succeed to demonstrate that secular humanism fails to provide the grounds for equality and human dignity, and instead undermines it, we can then present the Christian worldview as the only worldview that provides the grounds for equality and human dignity in God's creation of man in his divine image. Let's turn to the Muslim now, who is clearly opposite to the atheist in that he believes in a God, but still differs greatly from the Christian in that he holds to a counterfeit worldview. When it concerns the existence of God, Muslims hold to the doctrine of Tawid, which derived from the Quran and the Sunnah, the traditions of Muhammad, teach us that God is absolutely one. This is rooted in Surah 112, Ayah 1-4 of the Quran, which states, Say he, God, is one, God the eternally sufficient unto himself. He begets not, nor was he begotten, and none is like unto him. The doctrine of Tawid is contradictory to the Christian doctrine of the Holy Trinity, where God is described as one being in three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Now, because the Quran and the Sunnah teach Tawid, their God is essentially described as a singularity, in which commentator Fadl Allah writes, the mental faculty cannot reach him in his elusive and hidden mystery. Allah is essentially unintelligible to the human mind inapproachable, given that there exists no possible likeness between man and God, and hence he remains unknowable in his isolated oneness. We should then ask our Muslim friend how the Quran should itself be understood if it's the revelation of Allah, given that no human language is adequate enough to communicate information from an isolated singularity that is entirely other from the created world. Man, for example, is a relational being. However, the same cannot be said for God because he is a singularity within Islamic theology. Before space and time, there was no one whom Allah could be relational with in order to be a relational being. How then can a non-relational God create a relational man? Like all forms of religious humanism, Islam emphasizes an unknowable divinity concept with a God that cannot be known relationally. This then allows us to present the triune God of Scripture who is a relational being and thus, because man is created in God's image, something not held by Muslims and Islamic belief, God our Creator is intelligible to us. His word and revelation is intelligible to us. Let's consider a dis uh, discussion with the Hindu. The Hindu believes in a oneist worldview, that is to say, a worldview in which there is no distinction between creator and creation, just a combination of both the divine and infinite with the finite and temporal. All is Brahman and Brahman is all, the impersonal God from which all reality extends and thus man bears the spark of the divine, the Atman Brahman identity. It is for this reason that Hindus must be indifferent when it concerns morality, because all is Brahman and Brahman is all. 
pouring a hot cup of tea over a person's head cannot be wrong because it is simply an extension of Brahman being poured over another extension of Brahman. In other words, all things are a manifestation of the impersonal God that pervades all of reality. And therefore, there's no such thing as good or evil. However, the Hindu does not actually live this way. He lives in a way that presupposes a moral law. And although he may not keep it consistently, he also does not disregard it completely in his daily living. Perhaps he may be indifferent to pouring a hot cup of tea over his colleague, but he would be enraged if someone were to do the same to him. Well, why does the Hindu not live out the implications of his worldview if followed consistently? Because God has placed the law in the hearts of men. But as the Apostle Paul writes in Romans chapter 1, verse 25, they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshipped and served the creature rather than the creator. In the Bhagavad Gita, the Hindu scriptures, we find ample evidence that the Hindu, in fact, had a moral inclination, despite the warrior Arjuna in the story being argued out of it by his false deity, Vishnu. When faced with a war against his own kin, his own family, Arjuna laments, if we kill these murderers, evil like theirs would cling to us. Even if they, mastered by greed, are blind to the consequences of the family's destruction, of friendships lost to treachery, how are we not to comprehend that we must turn back from evil? Hinduism cannot make sense of morality. It cannot make sense of good and evil. And given that the caste system is a distinctly Hindu teaching, they cannot intellectually justify why the rejection of the caste system is wrong when in a pantheistic universe where all is God and God is all, there is no such thing as right or wrong. Everything is essentially relativistic and subjective, but we know as rational and logical human beings that truth is absolute, the morality is absolute. And to suggest that all things are relative, that what is true for me may not be true for you, would violate the law of non-contradiction, one of the laws of logic. The law of non-contradiction is that one or two or more statement, contradictory statements cannot be true at the same time and in the same sense. It is a law, a law of logic. And the laws of logic draw out from the very source of God himself because it is after all, his created world. Hinduism, therefore, requires a complete abandonment from logic and rationality in order to embrace its doctrines. However, man cannot abandon his intellect because he is created by the true God as an intellectual, rational, and moral being. There are various internal critiques that we can provide for the different world religions. But essentially, there are three categorized worldviews to help simplify our, our understanding. There is the Christian worldview, which is the only rational worldview that makes sense of reality, in which Christ is the center. There is the secular humanist worldview, where the center of its worldview is sinful man and his fallen desires, and this is often atheistic and agnostic, the secular humanist worldview. And then there is the religious humanist worldview, where the center of its worldview is again sinful man in that he is the authority, and it revolves around his fallen desires, but this can be Islamic, it could be Judaic, it could be Hinduistic, it could be Buddhistic, 
Yes, even a corrupt form of Christianity when Christ is not the center of the worldview. We, in essence, are tasked with building the bridge of understanding by demonstrating that human beings, even if they refuse to acknowledge it, have always believed in God, but suppress the truth by their sinful nature. How else can they explain a universe that adheres to laws of rationality and nature? Man, after all, lives in such a way that he expects regularity in nature. He expects that language will continue to have meaning each day. That gravity is continual and that he won't float off the earth one day. Essentially, man lives in a way that presupposes a personal creator because nature follows laws and laws imply a lawgiver who governs creation. This provides us with confidence, with sure footing to present the gospel with clarity, knowing that sinful man has already been revealed the truth by God's creation and that with the special revelation of God's word, he faces the decision to either repent or to continue in his sinful ways. This brings us to the bridge of relationship. And similar to the first bridge of knowledge, we play no part in building a relationship between man and God. This is a bridge that was built by Christ. A bridge made of wood and nails, the cross upon which he offered his body as a sacrificial atonement for our sins. It is insufficient for a man or a woman to pray the sinner's prayer to be saved. It is insufficient for someone to attend church on a regular basis to be saved. It is insufficient for someone to perform good deeds beyond that of the average person to be saved. Man can only be saved by the grace of God through faith alone, not by good works, not by repeating some oral formulaic ritual, which unfortunately has become the case, not by participation in church activities. Having worked as a street evangelist and campus missionary, I learned quite painfully that for someone to say the sinner's prayer does not mean that the person has actually repented of their sins and surrendered to the Lordship of Christ. Instead, I have witnessed more false conversions than genuine because the church is settled in a comfortable but dangerous position in which the love of God is proclaimed without the seriousness of man's sin. The church, in its effort to be more relatable to culture, not only has given its ear to liberal theology and the sinful behaviors of the world, but has preferred to present Jesus as a savior and not as a judge, giving a half-image at best and an idol of man's own making at its worst. For a conference on evangelism and discipleship, you need to understand what the gospel is before you can present it to a non-believing world. Because if you present it as something less or something else than the Bible's teaching of the gospel, you will fail in your efforts to advance the kingdom of God. This is the gospel in a nutshell. God created mankind in his image and entrusted him as his royal representatives, as his vice regents, to worship God not only through speech, but through his cultivation of God's creation by which culture came to be. Culture can be defined as the religion of the people externalized. Adam and Eve sinned, not only in eating of the forbidden tree, but in their motivation to be like God, to be morally, existentially, epistemologically independent from God, to decide for themselves what is good and evil, to be the creators of their own reality. The violation of God's law, as we know, is death. And by means of the Mosaic law, a greater consciousness of sin came about, 
which clearly differentiated sinful man from his holy creator in God. You see, the law was given to restrain man from furthering in his sin and depravity. But it also functioned as a tutor or schoolmaster, pointing to the one who is the fulfillment of the law, the God-man, the Son of the Most High, Jesus Christ, who took on human flesh to not only pay for our sin debt on the cross, but also, through his resurrection, bring life to the dead and restoration to God's creation. The gospel is this. Jesus Christ is king and he reigns sovereignly over all creation. And man must repent of his sin and submit to the lordship of Christ to enter his kingdom. Where from a slave of sin he can become by God's grace an adopted son or daughter of God. Redeemed and transformed. But otherwise, if Christ is rejected, man shall be judged by Christ who is the coming judge and he shall be eternally punished. The gospel, therefore, is not only applicable to the person, it is not only individual salvation, that is central, because otherwise without that it wouldn't be the gospel. It is also applicable to society, for the restoration of God's created order, and a restoration of man's call and duty to worship God, not only by speech, but by cultivating God's creation, that is culture, to glorify God, paying tribute to the Lordship of Christ. Yes, we certainly need a church that is passionate about evangelism. But we don't need more itinerant evangelists. We don't need an infinite number of apologists. What we need are good Christian businessmen, good Christian doctors, good Christian nurses, good Christian politicians and lawmakers. In which the gospel which has changed their lives can pour out into their vocation and therefore into society. Where eventually by seeing the majority of a nation coming to faith in Christ and repentance. We can see culture reflect the glory of God. A people glorifying God through all that they do. The redemption of man from his sinfulness is for far more than just waiting in line for heaven. Or until Christ returns. Well we'll just set up this little bomb shell and. Wait here in this, in this uh, bomb shelter until Christ returns because we know the world is going to get worse. No, we were redeemed for a far greater purpose. It's to bring all things subject to Christ as we advance his kingdom that the people's belief in Christ may be reflected in human culture. In conclusion to this lecture of this afternoon, the church has been called to be the salt and light of the world. Salt in which it keeps the perniciousness of evil, the poison of sin at bay for the preservation of creation and shining brightly in its proclamation of the gospel. You see, the church is not just salt. It is the salt and light. It serves a twofold purpose. It pushes back the darkness by the proclamation of the gospel of Christ. The answer to the growing drift between the church and a pagan culture is not to adapt to the patterns of this world, but rather to advance the kingdom of God by means of evangelism, evangelization, and discipleship. In our efforts to evangelize a sinful people, we must first understand that some level of a knowledge of God is present within them, suppressed by their sin nature. We must also comprehend that our job is not to make them know God, but rather to have them realize that they already live in a way that presupposes God, an understanding of that knowledge. And ultimately, however, it is not the Christian who brings about conviction of sin, but the Holy Spirit. 
we are tasked with delivering the good news of the kingdom of God. And as I demonstrated with the apologetic method to shut their mouths, that they may have no excuse for rejecting the risen Lord as Romans chapter three, verse 19 states. Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law so that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may be held accountable to God. Thank you for listening to this message brought to you by the Ezra Institute for Contemporary Christianity. Please feel free to share it with friends, but do not charge for or alter the material in any way without the express written consent of the EICC. Thank you.